friends, welcome to another episode of Overlooked Giants. I am Asati Nu, and in this episode, I am meeting with comedian Zara Norbush. I first met Zara during a two-week run of her show on behalf of all Muslims. This was a unique experience because I got to see and be a part of the inner workings of her show, and I admired the blend between theater performance and stand-up comedy. She's also just genuinely a great person to be around. And every time we've had a chance to chat, it felt like chatting with a friend that I had known my whole life. This was a great way to connect. And I am so glad that we were able to connect to do this interview. And I'm sure that you will enjoy listening to her story. My name is Zara Norbeck. I am a feminist Muslim Iranian American comedian uh, who also identifies as bisexual, pansexual, bisexual. What are we now? Uh, (laughs) and I uh, am American I grew up here in uh, I'm in California right now with planes flying overhead uh, because of the protests Mm -hmm. and uh, I went to a different elementary school for every year I know how to make friends I don't know how to keep them that's tougher (laughs) uh i we settled in the east bay in this like conservative pocket um when i was in middle school and high school uh and i was like are we gonna move again and my parents were like nope this is it now and so my littlest sister and i were 11 years apart and we have super different experiences of um of just growing up Uh, like she grew up in the same house that she was born in and has been there ever since still is, you know what I mean? Like I don't have that experience at all. And like, she has, she had the same friend group growing up and just like, and I, I grew up as a poor kid that it was just like bouncing, right. You know, between flats and she grew up in this like really affluent white suburb. And then we've got the kids in between who are super well-adjusted and like VP in finance doctor. (laughs) Then my sister and I are like the bookends (laughs) (laughs) trying to figure it out. Right. Right. Now, how many of you are there all together? Four of us. Four. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I definitely remember the story from uh, your show because you share a lot around your upbringing and um, just your experience of (laughs) of sort of being the oldest and how things were different. Uh, But just um, can you elaborate a bit more on just your experience of... um, Obviously, being a person of color, especially in a very conservative area where those things were not the social norm. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't grow up knowing that I was brown. Mm. I thought I was white and just really bad at it. <laughs> I didn't understand <laughs> the conversations around racism were very black and white. Mm you know, um, and, and then it was already like difficult to, you know, um, sort of advocate for folks seeing racism when it happened as, you know, like watching 
black people, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, black kids in high school who were like, that's racist. And then there'd be all this like uproar. What do you mean? You know, this in- incredulousness of like, how dare you? That's the R word. Like, <laughs> it was like, that was already hard. So then it was like, well, there's no way that I'm experiencing racism. Mm-hmm. It must just be me. Like, you know, um, right. and my mom wore hijab all the way up until 9-11, which a lot of people think is because she was scared after 9-11 or what, but it was more just exhaustion. Yeah. Because she wore hijab all through the 80s, which is post-Iranian hostage crisis. Mm-hmm. And in the 80s, that told people that you were Iranian and a hostage taker. They didn't know what Islam was. So we were constantly fielding, you know, aggression, real yeah. violent aggression. Um, people would like try to drive their, like act like they were going to ram us with their cars. Mm-hmm. And then at the last minute, screech off and throw up the peace sign. People would randomly throw up the peace sign in traffic all the time. They would come up to her at the grocery store all the time and ask her, why do you hate America? You know, right. and it, it was just exhausting. And then um, when she would talk about people being racist, we all grew up as kids who thought that that was a thing that happened to black people, not mm-hmm. anyone else. Mm-hmm. With anyone else, it must have been an argument. You know, <laughs> it was like, right. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, I grew up in a big fog, I think, Mm -hmm. because I like now looking back, so many things make more sense. Mm -hmm. My antagonistic relationship with teachers, why it was so important to me to build relationships with teachers where they liked me. Like I couldn't function in a classroom if I thought the teacher didn't like me. Mm -hmm. And Now, looking back, I understand what that was. At the time, as a kid, I just thought that I was a lousy white kid. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which is is, weird. It's so interesting because then, like, people, I would hear people say, like, white people say all the time, they would say such weird shit. Like, uh, can I cuss on here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) They would say things, they would say things like, Oh, if only like, you know, if only some black kids didn't know that uh, they were black, then they wouldn't grow up ever knowing about racism. And then they wouldn't have that sort of basically chip on their shoulder. Uh, hmm. Right. Interesting. Okay. Like, oh, okay. That's all. What an origin story. All right. (laughs) (laughs) And then when I found out in what was it 2008 wow that there's such a thing as being brown uh and such a thing as white presenting and that Mm -hmm. that's not the same as being white Mm -hmm. and that white is an institutional term because I really grew up as just like a suburban kid who had no real politicization other than you know understanding as an Iranian that like narrative propaganda is a thing right and and narratives can be used to can be weaponized stories are weapons that i understood really clearly when it came to sort of the domestic politics of racism i didn't understand how that functioned aside from my like high school 
civics class, you know, um, where that wasn't really like a meaningful conversation. Um, and, and it was all like about a point of view. It was all a perspective. It was never about institutional pressure Mm. and, um, this mythical time where racism existed, you know, that we're over now. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So I didn't really like, it's not like I went to college and then went into poli sci, you know, I went, and this is all also like pre Facebook, Mm -hmm. pre call out culture, pre, you know, um, a lot of the rhetoric that I see so many high school students have access to that I really appreciate is like, oh, that's nice <laughs> to know, yeah, yeah, I know. who you yeah. are. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Have access to information about you. That's nice. Yeah. 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 So I just was like, I just, I just want to be a comic. I just want to make people laugh. I just want to write for television. And that meant not you know, getting involved in politics. Cause for me, politics was explaining to people where Iran is, what Muslim is. And I was so exhausted by it. Right. And I thought I could escape it. And, um, by, by disinheriting myself basically. Mm. Mm. And, and I see a lot of young comedians do that too, where they think I'll just be a comedian. And I'm like, no, racism is when you're not, and it's not up to you. Right. Right. And I met Kamau when I was really struggling with my standup and Kamau was like, you know, you're, you've got this white boyfriend, your parents are Iranian. How does that work? And I was like, well, you know, Iranians are white. And he was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) He's like, time out. What? I'm sorry. Come again. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I'm white. And he was like, no, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) and uh then he told me about like you know the the sort of politics of whiteness briefly enough for me to be like what and then I saw his show Mm. which is you know the W. Kamau bell curve ending racism in about an hour it really worked for me that was a really (laughs) was a really powerful hour (laughs) right light bulb on Yeah. And I mean, everyone is like, oh, that must have been hard. And I was like, no, oh my God, are you kidding? It was like my whole life I'd been gaslit. And then finally everything made sense. My boyfriends in college made sense. The way they treated me made sense. Every teacher I ever interacted with made sense. Mm -hmm. All the double standards I kept talking about made sense. Like high school made so much more sense. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. So talk to me about when you first, bouncing back, uh, when you first got involved in the arts, when you felt like, and and what was your first expression? What was your first artist expression? Was it comedy? Was it, uh, you know, singing in the choir? Where did you first identify that your artistic spirit? Ooh, okay. It was fourth grade. Mm. There was a poetry contest. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, I wrote a poem about a leaf that fell from the tree and fell a different color. Oh, wow. And wilted and died alone on the forest floor. (laughs) See, you did know about racism. You just didn't know what you were talking about. (laughs) 
interesting because I knew, I remember knowing like, oh, uh, if I write something sad, it will win. (laughs) You know, like I already knew about tragedy porn (laughs) when I was a kid. They love hearing about our struggles. Right. And, (laughs) And that like belonging was, you know, like a sort of a liberal, very liberal theme mm. that that teachers very much rallied around. Like, oh, you don't feel like you belong? Right. Oh, no, let's fix that. You right. belong. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it won. And I was like, whoa. I think because that was the first time I really, like, one something to do with my writing. Yeah. Cool. And so from there, did you, when did you discover that comedy was the path that you wanted to take? I think I always knew because when I was five, I remember, I mean, that's most of my earliest memories. Mm. I always noticed that when my mom would get accosted you know, by people at the grocery store or when we were walking in the park with questions, foreign policy questions, Mm. I would be the funny, likable American kid. You know, there was this one time this guy uh, stopped us in the grocery store and my mom and I were already in a huge argument over Lucky Charms Mm. because I wanted them. And I kept saying, all the American kids have them. Everybody eats them. I want Lucky Charms. And they're magically delicious. <laughs> my mom said, no, they have pork in them. They're haram. And I was like, that's stupid. <laughs> there is no pork in Lucky Charms. That's ridiculous. Right. <laughs> and then this guy approached us in the middle of this argument and he opened his mouth with the same stupid question ready to come out of it. Why do you hate America? And I was so over it. Mm. And I turned to him and I said, we do not hate your people, sir. (laughs) And will you tell the stupid immigrant there's no pork in Lucky Charms? (laughs) And he said, there is. (laughs) Well, actually, there is. (laughs) What? And he said, you do not need more sugar. Listen to your mother. And I was like, why are you friends with her now? Right. What happened? (laughs) And even though I didn't, you know, have the vocabulary around it, that was my first experience of being a foil. Mm -hmm. And it sort of like solidified like, oh, there's this thing when people laugh because he was laughing. It was ridiculous. He was laughing and (laughs) he left laughing. Right. And that did more to get people to leave and leave us alone than my mom's explanations. Mm-hmm. her earnest explanations. And so that really solidified for me how powerful laughter was. Mm. And I really watched people really closely. Like, you know, how come when that boy says this joke, everybody laughs, but I said the same joke and nobody laughed. Mm. And I was always trying to figure out how to land that. And I was obsessed with the Corys. Right. And all their 80s movies, because especially Corey Feldman, because I was like, he is the guy 
who never has to do homework. No one expects anything from him. <laughs> right. His biggest heroic move is that he's like, all right, I'll stop telling wisecracks and I'll start to care. <laughs> like halfway through the movie and everyone's like, look at him become a different man. And right. I was like, that's what I want. Right. That's what I want. That's the level of effort I want to put into life. <laughs> that right. that's the freedom I'm looking for. That's my liberation, <laughs> Corey Feldman. Right. <laughs> In the oh, Goonies. she's starting to care <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Look at Norbeck coming around. How about that kid? Yeah, right. <laughs> Because I was so exhausted by, uh, as a kid, by exceptionalism mm -hmm. and the model minority promise of work until you die and then you can have a life. Right. You know, <laughs> right. Like, sleep when you're dead is what my dad used to say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my God. And my dad was always like, just get a PhD. All you need is a PhD. And I was like, you are the most miserable person I know. <laughs> this cannot be the answer. Right. Yeah. 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 All you do is work. You're, you just say work hard, but you're still working hard. <laughs> and mom's still answering all the same questions like an idiot. Right. Yeah. And I want to live the life of an idiot. <laughs> I don't want to struggle <laughs> like an idiot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I really was like paying attention early on and cataloging, you know, what works for who. And if I say the joke this way or, oh, these these folks. You know, I was, I was always paying attention to audience. Like mm -hmm. these folks, you know, if I say a dirty joke this way, coded this way, they'll laugh. But if I, if I say it this other, if I say it too crass, they'll be grossed out. Cause mm -hmm. when, when a girl makes these jokes, it's different than when a boy does. Like I was really paying attention to that. Right. And all I wanted was to just be a 13 year old white boy. Right. Which Such is a good life. <laughs> I don't think people know how much they're in charge. Well, oh, they do, which is why we watch so many <laughs> movies. I mean, when you think about it, like it oh, really, yeah. all the movies that we watched, those were, that's what we saw, right? And the, like, think about their summer vacations when we saw movies about their summer yes. vacations, when we saw movies about like their first experience in high school. Like, it was just like, this is it. Like you, you get yes. to do nothing and, and you get away with everything. Like, yeah, I want that. <laughs> Oh my God. And like, you know, dads were always trying to grow up, mm -hmm. you know, and be liked by these teenage boys and like be the cool guy. And I right. would watch teachers try to like be the cool teacher, <laughs> you know? And when I would sneer at them, I just got an F. Like it didn't <laughs> work the same way. <laughs> it does not work the same way at all. <laughs> I was like, I'm withholding approval. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Work for it. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, teach. Exactly. Yeah. Didn't so work. in your, in your moving forward in your career, I, I mean, I certainly know that as a musician, I've had to face many a trials as being a female musician walking into the room. Um, but I know that being a comedian has its own set of struggles just trying to be a comedian but then on top of that trying to be a female comedian of color 
Mm. It's like a whole nother barrier. So talk to me a little bit about your experiences and finding your way to feel comfortable doing what you love. Man, I wanted to give up so many times. I was just so tired and Mm. I, I didn't understand one, why I kept doing it. Mm. Um, and I didn't understand why it didn't work when I did it. Cause I started comedy in 2003, the same night as Ali Wong. Mm. She killed it. And she had jokes. And I was like, how did you write jokes? Like, <laughs> I just had funny stories. Right. And I would see guys be funny, you know, and mimic stuff I'd seen on television. Mm-hmm. It was just some other version. I didn't really understand, you know, like, how are you doing that? How are you replicating that? And she had jokes, jokes, you know, like, and and she had worked with the groundlings, I think at some point and nobody in the sort of comedy scene really had much information about like, how do you write a joke joke that there was always this like, well, you know, you just be funny is it's innate. Um, and I hated that because I already, I was a kid with ADD and people would always say, you know, well, if you're smart, (laughs) if you want to, if you really want it, if you're motivated, you know, and I also have scoliosis, very light tilt, three degrees left swing. Mm. (laughs) And just enough for teachers to be like, straighten your back, you know, like sit up straight, quit slouching, quit tilting. Why do you keep moving in your chair? I was like, cause I'm uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) And they'd always be like, sit up tall. And so I kind of had a real rooted physical experience of the damage that default rhetoric does Mm -hmm. of just, you know, would you just as though it's easy for you and you're making life hard. Right. And so when I got into comedy and people would say that, I knew that that wasn't the right answer. Mm hmm. But I had no other answer. So it meant a lot to meet Kamau. You know, we we had this like sort of, we were on the same bill, performed the same night, and we both bombed. And we're sitting on opposite sides of this velvet couch at a dive bar in Berkeley. <laughs> Just like, ugh. And I had heard of him. People had said, you know, oh, Kamau Bell's coming back. And I didn't, I hadn't start I hadn't been in comedy when he was around so I I didn't know him mm. and I was always like I don't know if I want to be a comedian you know like because to me it wasn't a real viable career path people treated comedians like shit right yeah um they didn't they didn't do so well like women in comedy I was like count like there was Margaret Cho Joan Rivers Wendy Liebman would sometimes make the scene on late night Maria Bamford was doing some stuff. It there wasn't really like a prolific scene of women, you know, the way that I saw in law or right. advertising or medicine, you know, I was like this doesn't sound like a great idea. And I thought I'll be a screenwriter or I'll be a showrunner or I'll be an author, like I was always looking for a position where I had some narrative control. Mm-hmm. And I knew I wanted to be in charge of stories cuz the only thing that plagued me all growing up was people with the wrong story. Right. 
And somehow somebody told them some story before I got there. That was always clear to me. (laughs) I was like, I want to be the first person that tells you. (laughs) (laughs) And Kamal was my first time meeting somebody who was like validating all my experiences. This is a thing. Audiences don't look at you the same way as they do all these other white boys. This is what she's doing. This is what he's doing. This is what they're trying to do. This is the sort of, he he demystified a lot of the magic. And, you know, of course he came out of the second city scene in Chicago and he wrote about comedy. He was in Bill Hicks's forward. Like he wrote Bill Hicks's forward to his book. So, I mean, he, there was a kind of pedagogy there mm-hmm. that I really absorbed because, you know, I came out as a, theater and performance studies major. So I was a total sponge for all of it. Right. Right. And I ended up going in to do one person shows, but then even then, like I was the go-to person to ask about foreign policy again. Mm. And my picture was in the paper on my first one person show, all atheists are Muslim, a romantic comedy side by side with the Arab spring. I'm Persian. I'm not even Arab. Like I can't right. answer <laughs> these right. questions. Right. It's two very different things. Oh my God. And thank God I had him to sort of guide me through how to navigate that terrain. Mm-hmm. Um, he really sort of like, you know, explained for me, you don't have to educate everybody. If you don't want to answer that question, you don't need to. And here are some strategies. Here are some tactics you know, this review is racist. Like, <laughs> right. right. I, I, I think if I didn't have that, all my theater training and all my comedy training was like, the audience is always right. You navigate mm-hmm. by their needs, you, you know, and I think it would have really shaped my material differently. And I think I probably would have left the genre because what I was looking for was a place where I didn't have to bear the burden of educating. I could just tell my story. Right. Right. Um, So there was a point where I hit a wall and I felt like I'm just done. I don't want to do this anymore. And I told him I quit. Mm -hmm. And he just got so sad. Like he just kind of understood. I felt like, and he said, you know, I wish that you had my friends around you right now that I had in 2007 when I tried to quit. And if you can do anything else, you should go do it. Mm. But you don't choose comedy. It chooses you. Right. Right. Yeah. And I just was like, yeah, whatever, man. (laughs) (laughs) I'm out. (laughs) I'm done with this. (laughs) So how have you been able to navigate a lot of those spaces where a lot of that racist rhetoric still happens? How how have you been able to navigate um, even in terms of when somebody writes a review and they make a comment that's racist? Like what, what, what has been your approach in terms of still staying <laughs> really fierce in, in right and knowing who you are, but at the same time, also putting them in their place. I think I have a remarkable capacity for failure. Mm. 
<laughs> it just doesn't deter me. Like there, I can, I can stand so much public failure. I can't stand too much public success. Mm. Mm. That messes me up. But having low expectations, and <laughs> making sure others do too of me right. <laughs> really serves me <laughs> in my field. Um, I've had the benefit of really amazing guidance. You know, Yolanda Hippensteel, who was a person who helped come out um, when he was sort of looking for a manager um, and transitioning into um, the totally biased work mm-hmm. with Chris Rock and whatnot. She taught, he, he connected me with her and she taught me a lot about talking points, right. um, messaging. And uh, it reminded me a lot of what I learned in speech and debate um, as a kid in high school. And it made sense, you know, cause I understood messaging as a Muslim kid. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, at uh, mosque, we were always trading notes about how to talk to our teachers, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, Oh, in class, they made me be the native American kid on Thanksgiving again. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I had to explain what narrative propaganda is and genocide. And how do you guys do that? <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And this isn't even formalized. This is just like kids trying to figure out how to be kids in school. So mm-hmm. I that already I understood. She didn't have to win me over on like because I notice now, like when I try to tell other comedians who are like me, you know, hyphenated comics, and I try to tell them like this is what you gotta do, and they're like, I don't need to do all that. And it surprises me because I guess I didn't have that sort of I won't need to do that. As soon as she started explaining it to me, I was like, oh, I understand. Right. Uh, And I picked that up really fast. And um, I also, there's this tip that a director of mine gave once to another director in directing class uh, when I was a theater major, Mm. where she was having this actor who was just really coming in, not doing their work Mm -hmm. and deflecting. That's what I saw that every time they came in and they had had specific homework that they were given, they would do what it is that they understood how to do. And when she would tell them that that's not what she wanted, they would escalate and kind of make it a personal attack or turn it into something about an argument about the scene or about the character. Mm even though she's the director kind of telling this actor, this is what I want. Right. Right. And our directing teacher said, what you do is every time they come in, you give them the same note and they're going to go all over the place and you're going to give them the same note and you're going to say it the same way. And you're going to say, thank you. I still have the same note. (laughs) (laughs) That really served me navigating these foreign policy questions because it's like Groundhog's Day (laughs) it's the same question you know it's like why are there good and bad Muslims what's that about like and it's like none of these things are true all of this is a fallacy I can't engage with any of it it's some other version of a tantrum right right and so I would just have the same note I'm here with my personal story you can say that there are good and bad Muslims in the world. Sure. There's many ways that I'm both. 
I think what's important to me is that you found a way to relate. Right. Right. And I, I think that's more important than anything right now. I think that's more important than you understanding my people. I think more important than anything is you relating to me as a person. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Which is what I know we would all love. <laughs> right. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, so bouncing uh, back, when did you discover that you were something other than just a straight woman? When did you discover there was something queer about who you were? I think I remember when I was like five, there was this couple that used to do aerobics together. And I was totally into both of them. I was like, both of you guys have a hot 80s aerobic thing going on. (laughs) With the biker shorts. (laughs) Oh my God. They had the leotard. Oh, wow. And warmers, lake warmers, and the big hair. I'm a Persian woman. I love volume. (laughs) And I was like, whatever you guys have going on is great. (laughs) And I kept asking my mom, so how did they get married? (laughs) (laughs) Because I wanted to marry them. (laughs) Right. How can I become a part of this? (laughs) (laughs) I just knew... I knew that people got married when there was a chemistry and they would get married. We would go to weddings and it was like, oh, she likes him. He likes her. They're married. I think I thought marriage was probably some version of sex. Like I just thought that that was the word. And I was like, I want to marry them. How do I marry them? How did they get married? Cause she has blonde hair and he has brown hair. How do they get married? Right. <laughs> How does this work? I just want to, I just want to get all the inside scoop. <laughs> My mom was like, anyone can get married. What are you talking about? And I was like, got it. Understood. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) And like people, I remember mimicking a lot of quote unquote normal behavior Mm -hmm. around sexuality. Like I understood that Zach the Lego maniac was a good looking kid Mm. and that I should swoon over him because he acted like all the boys in the movies where girls would do that. And I think I, I definitely noticed that other people weren't taking notes around sexuality the way that I was right? as an adolescent, just always looking for cues. What's normal? What are normal people doing? How do we normal here? <laughs> right. <laughs> I would like to normal. Right. <laughs> and I remember in high school, I was sort of like making remarks about this like one model and about how gorgeous she was. And one of my friends made a joke like, Zara, if you have something to tell us, we're here to hear it. (laughs) Right. And I genuinely paused for a moment and said, you know, I actually wonder sometimes. And then the bell rang and we all just left. (laughs) No one ever talked about it. Are you serious? There was no follow-up? There was no like, so let's go no. back to that. Uh-uh. No. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> like queerness in the 90s in, where I grew up was very like um, confusion. Mm. Mm. And yeah. unless you had a sickness, you didn't need to follow up on that. Gotcha. And okay. all of us got confused. Mm-hmm. But if you didn't have something wrong with you that we all had to take care of, 
you know, and be sensitive around. Right. Then, because, you know, there was that whole, like, you can't help it. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, if you're one of the people who can't help it, then it makes sense Mm -hmm. to be queer, but otherwise get it together. (laughs) (laughs) Pick a side. Just stop. Yeah. Pick a side. Yeah. (laughs) And it wasn't until, um, the Orlando shooting happened Mm. and everyone was saying you can't be gay and Muslim. And I had been with a woman and I was like very clear on my queerness, but I just never talked about it because it was always about sex. And because I already had to navigate, I already had to navigate sex in my friendships with men. Mm -hmm. And I had really close relationships with women who were lesbians. And I was like, I don't need one more place where I can't have friends. Mm -hmm. And it really sucked in middle school when adolescence came around, puberty hit and everything went from cooties to boys and girls. And all my boy, all my guy friends turned into jerks, you know, (laughs) like super chauvinist jerks that were always making jokes about my boobies. Mm-hmm. And all the girls only wanted to talk about boys, right? And I lost all my friends. I was like, "What happened to when we all like drew X Men comics?" Right. <laughs> this sucks. <laughs> yeah. So I, I had no problem not talking about it, and also because I w- was with a man that I loved, and I was monogamous. I'm monogamous still, and I'm married, and we have a monogamous relationship mostly because I'm a very jealous person. <laughs> oh, that makes sense. Know thyself. <laughs> yeah. I will kill him. Right. <laughs> and and I like I I didn't feel comfortable taking up space as a queer person and representing quote unquote on behalf of all queer Muslims. I was like, I don't know if this is even appropriate. But then as we were talking about it on our podcast, Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, my co-host Taz Ahmed was saying there are all these Muslims saying that they're standing in solidarity with the queer community as though the two don't intersect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, they're silencing their own queer kids. Right. And I was hearing like and seeing all of the scholars, you know, writing things like, well, in Islam, you can't be gay and Muslim. It's not in the text, you know, and. It's like, come on, we know how religion does this. Christianity's gone through it. Yeah. Judaism has gone through it. Like this is this is not new. What is this? So then I came out on the podcast and I said, I'm bisexual, I'm gay, queer, whatever you want to call it. And that's all I have to say. I I'm married. That's not an erasure. And I, I didn't have any other language. Mm-hmm. And I was really stuck. And um, I wrote about it because, you know, Kamau had always sort of guided me on like when you have something that's coming out that's about you, Mm -hmm. about your people, or especially if it's about you, then get ahead of that narrative. Write the piece that you want everyone else to see. Don't wait for the interview. Right. So I wrote an op-ed. Um, and sent it to Bitch Media. I had a relationship with the editor there, and she really helped me a lot. Um, and 
you know, I spent like a month writing that piece. And then she said, I want to put it out for bisexual visibility week. And I said, let's do it with bugs crawling all up and down inside me. I was terrified that, you know, what are people going to say? I was so scared right? Of, yeah. of call out culture of, you know, who are you trying to act like you're queer straight girl? Um, but that's not what happened. It, the piece got picked up by PRI and BBC. It went to 80 million people and I didn't get a single letter of hate. Not one. Well, that is amazing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and surprising, honestly, because it just seems like there uh, seems to be so much hate fueled at any one other who's just other, you know. Yeah. What I mean? um, and so, yeah, it is. It's I, it's wonderful, but it's also surprising that there weren't um, people out there protesting and <laughs> because yeah. of your because of you being who you are. So, um, but it, so in in your um, coming to, you know, sort of coming out right on air and, and that whole feeling. I know that, uh, just in terms of really just American culture and how it is that we view what it is to be Muslim, right? Because most people don't take the time to educate themselves to really try to understand. And so due to ignorance, there's like all of these misconceptions around, you know, being Muslim is so strict and you can't do this and you can't do that. And, you know, like just <laughs> really off the wall ideals. Right. And so um, in, in that, I know that one of, you know, you even mentioned one of the things is like, you can't be gay and Muslim, right. That's just impossible. Like that's just, that's not a thing, but how have you been able to push back against that narrative um, and sort of letting people know that, yeah, it is actually very possible because that's who I am. And there are thousands of people out there that are also Muslim that are also gay. And so how have you been able to really push back against that narrative to help to get people to see something different? I think because of the position of privilege I have as a straight presenting person, mm. I'm in this heteronormative relationship. When people want to say a thing about me, some some Muslims that want to say, well, you can't mm -hmm. get sort of stuck because um, I'm saying that it's possible versus um, them commenting on my actions. Right. Um, and for them to sort of see me um, be so visible and vocal about the fact that you absolutely can and it's not up to them mm -hmm. really challenges the argument that they want to come in with which is um you know you can't behave that way and I'm telling them it's not up to you it's not a behavior it's who you are right right and it's it's you you don't get to tell people how to be and you don't get to tell people how to muslim <laughs> that's why I'm muslim Right. Because the one tenant that I grew up with was no matter what happens, remember, there is no person between you and Allah. Mm -hmm. We don't have priests. We don't have clergy like that. No one can stand in the way of that. That from that was very much my origin story as a Muslim was my dad telling me about the story of the Kaaba and about 
the the sheikhs and about how they were lying to the people about the role of idols and that people would throw money at the feet of these idols and then these sheikhs would take the money and they were you know wielding institutional power calling it divine mm-hmm. and that the way to prevent that from ever happening is to know that no one stands between you and divinity that's your relationship and they don't get to comment on that and they don't get to judge it um so i think sort of coming from that position and as a woman in a heteronormative marriage really insisting that we have these conversations still even though it's not impacting me as they see it mm-hmm. you know i'm not asking for permission to be gay right um and i'm i'm not really asking permission to be accepted because they accept me because i'm in a heteronormative relationship right right um so I think that helps. Um, I think also uh, it helps that I'm Shia, oddly. Because <laughs> then the, a lot of Muslim discourse is like, well, she is already kind of queer, you know? <laughs> it's like, you're already the sort of fringe. Gotcha. You know, you're not, you're not the dominant. And we have opinions about you anyway. Like, right, right. <laughs> so... The, and then because I'm a comedian, um, that's disarming sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, people say, uh, well, she's she's a comedian. She is trying to get people to think differently, you know. Um, there, There's that too. Mm-hmm. Um, even before I came out, though, I used to say I'm the pork-eating Muslim. And people would get really frustrated by that. They would call it an assimilationist narrative. But for me, it was a way to be queer because pork was pussy. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It was a way to gauge how safe I was. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Around people. If they really lost their minds around that, what else are they going to lose their mind around? And I would get emails from people saying, you know, I'm gay, but I don't eat pork. What are you doing? (laughs) Yeah. And that was how I would find friends, you know. <laughs> it's like, hey, wait, you worked. <laughs> well, wait, you're gay. Okay, great. Let's. <laughs> Can you stop eating pork, though? No, it's yeah. delicious. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I. I mean, I. I feel like it's. Uh, there's so much in terms of how uh, so many of our stories as just queer women of color cross paths right and and this the 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 ways in which um we're so connected in terms of having these same struggles and these same journeys and it may be it you know the story may sound a little bit different it may have some different characters but honestly it really is the same plot right and so um how have you been able to continue to find inspiration? I know you mentioned that you uh, had thought about quitting at one point. How have you been able to f- continue to find inspiration to do what you love and to stay in this? Yeah, I mean, I think after having written the report, Funny is Funny, uh, New Development Models for Diverse Voices in uh, Comedy. Mm-hmm for the pop culture collaborative. It really sort of gave me a sense of legitimacy on an institutional scale that Mm -hmm. I really needed um, to be for me, 
Like, cause it's one thing to say it, you know, say I'm a comedian. I know I have one person shows. I know I'm not performing five, six nights a week. It doesn't make me not a comedian. It just means that I struggle with access. Right. Right. And we need more stage spaces for people like me who don't want to go to bars where I have five minutes to address the tension in the room, which is about me being ethnically ambiguous, and then immediately is about me being Muslim, and then immediately is about what is Iran and where is it, and what do I think of it? Right. You know, I can't do comedy there. So when you figure that out, I'll go there. Mm -hmm. Meantime, I'm developing one-person shows as a way to find my comedic voice. That still makes me a comedian. Right. Right. Um, it's one thing to run around saying that. It's another to have institutional support saying we see that this is a problem. Right. Right. And so it in in that even in developing the, you know, the one woman shows that you're doing and and um sort of creating it's interesting I, I was having I had I did an interview with uh, Mary Guzman who is a film director I think you may know her but um, and so one of the things that she mentioned was the fact that she was never really welcome in the room you know mm. and and um, most of the time that room was filled with white cis men and so really she was just never really welcome in the room and so creating her own room and creating her own space and so do you find it to be more more frustrating or more liberating for you um, to have to create, in a sense, your own room, right? To to not necessarily be able to go to do those places. Is it more frustrating or is it more liberating for you? Definitely it's more frustrating. Mm. You know, it's it's so much to like, you know, like my friend Irene too was commenting on um Zoom comedy shows and how much of a pain they are because mm -hmm. you have to like all of a sudden you're not a comedian anymore. Now you're tech. Now you're also having to like establish lighting, you know, find a good spot, look at the wall, look at the colors, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and I'm like, I, I was like, Whoa, that's what it's like on a metaphorical scale to try to be a comic when you don't have a room. Right. It's like, I have to build the theater space. I have to go out and find my audience demographic. I have to invite them. I have to get them there. And then in addition to that, I have to work against everybody who thinks that they know, mm. you know, because it's not theater. It's not the same as a the theater crowd. Theater crowds are largely affluent white subscribers yep. um, who are older mm -hmm. and are of a generation when theater was subsidized. Mm -hmm. In a Jimmy Carter era where that was a cultural experience, you went to the theater. Right. Um, and we don't have that anymore. And so that, that's the predominant audience. And I have to go like really seek out, you know, folks who show up, which is largely people involved in grassroots movements. Yep. They like showing up. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to do all that. I have to do the marketing. I have to do the producing. I have to, you know. And most of the time it's not welcome. Like people don't like a smart woman of color. Yes. <laughs> Very much away. Yeah. Yeah. They they don't like hearing that they don't you're telling them they're doing their job different, wrong, but however they it lands for them. Mm -hmm. Um and it what I see is at some point you get better at being a producer than an artist. Mm 
Mm -hmm. You get better at marketing than being an artist and Mm -hmm. people let go of their art and go do that. Right. And it sucks. Um, And I've had to really work against that instinct in myself. And now I'm turning 40 in a couple days, 11 days. Happy birthday. Thank you. (laughs) Ah! We'll have a virtual party. Turn it up. Yeah, something, (laughs) something. I'm turning 40. and, And then like the, I feel it like the, there's certain things that are such a comfort to me to do. Mm-hmm. It's so much easier for me to open up a Google spreadsheet <laughs> and build a class and and teach a class and set up a syllabus and fix other people's writing than mm-hmm. it is to really sit with my own writing. Right. I'm not as practiced in that. And especially as an oldest kid, I'm very practicing caretaking. Right, right it's much harder for me to put that inclination in the parking lot when I work and sit with the discomfort of, I'm not good at this, mm-hmm. you know, and especially being 17 years in, I've learned to shut off those gremlins. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> To turn them off and to, to notice them and say, you know, oh, this is me not being as practiced. It's not the end of the world. It doesn't mean I'm not built for this. Right, right. I can do this. I've done it before. I just have to get through this hump. Right. So I, I just have really just two more questions for you and, and uh, both kind of tie into the other. Um, the first is, uh, and I've been asking everyone this, but what does love look like to you? Love looks like infrastructure. Okay. <laughs> Freeways, libraries, mm-hmm. Okay. post offices, Gotcha. public <laughs> reform. <laughs> Buildings for social welfare, mm-hmm. the DMV. Mm-hmm. Oh, there you go. That's Not many love. people have that on their list. <laughs> I can guarantee you that. <laughs> what is your mode of self-care? Like, how do you practice your self-care? Or do you practice self-care? Yeah, I mean, uh, for me, the practice of self-care is self-exploration. Mm. Because... It's, it's always been a radical act for me to have to pause in other people's experiences of me mm-hmm. and say, no, that doesn't help me. Right. You know, I get, a, I've, I've, I get a lot of like, you should sit this way. You should exercise this way. You should behave this way. You should talk this way. You should move through the world this way. Your career should look like this. Right. Right. And at the same time, it's not like that path is laid out for me. So I do, I never feel like I'm in such a place where I can hear advice and ignore it. Mm. You know, I really seek out advice actively because, you know, but I'm always piecing it together. So self-care for me really looks like pausing and hearing my own inner voice mm. and, and letting it really navigate. I'm, I'm so used to putting it aside. Right, right. 
And so final question here, if you were to give any advice to a young queer woman who is coming up uh, in the industry, whatever part of the industry, uh, what advice would you offer to her? Ooh, wow. I don't know why I said, wow. Like, (laughs) 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 maybe because I never feel like a person to give advice around that because I spent <laughs> so much of it silent um, that like me seeking advice around it was always, I feel like I'm not queer enough. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> More fireworks. They're just ashes to your, to your words. Yes. <laughs> I think probably just you're queer enough. Yeah. Don't don't let other people tell you how you're supposed to be. Mm. It's just one more version of the same thing. Right. Right. All right. Well, I just I thank you again for taking the time out to meet with me and to do this. Thank you. I do hope that you've enjoyed this interview with Zara. Please be sure to follow the links attached to the podcast for ways to connect with her and be sure to follow her on social media to find out where she is and what she's up to and what she has coming up next. Thank you so much for listening. Please stay tuned for more episodes to come. In the meantime, be well, be blessed. One love. Thank you.